You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. What do the majority of people on online dating sites and the War and Conquest podcast have in common? We're both just here for a good time. Well, that and we're trying to get you to use your credit card to sign up for our online cam service. But ignore that and focus on the fact that War and Conquest podcast has vivid descriptions of battles and sieges, political infighting in the ancient and medieval world, thousands of sexy singles in your area ready to chat, but more importantly, metalcore intros like this one, drunk reviews of historical movies and TV shows, a really excitable host, and at this point probably hundreds of pop culture and TV and movie references. So if you're looking to learn about the events that shaped the growth of the Western world, and have a good time while you're at it, you should check out the War and Conquest podcast, hosted by Neil Eckert. That's me, Mario. My name's not Mario, though, it's Neil. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I'm here. Oh yeah, that's right, it's from my podcast. So if you're interested, check out War and Conquest, wherever you find your podcast, or at warandconquest.com. Fulvia was a goddamn sledgehammer. Cries of the crowd that wake you, lamentations at the edge of your dreams, the sound of your name and his, and you wake and you run to your window. A dozen people, maybe more, all crowded before your house, and then you see him laid out on the ground at your doorstep. It's your husband, and he isn't moving. And now you're running, down the steps and through the hallway. You fling open the door to see the faces crowded around you, a city full of people who'd loved him and looked to both of you. You'd begged him not to go that day. You told him you had a bad feeling, but he didn't listen. And now here he is, dead and bleeding on your doorstep. 
The people crowd around you as you kneel on the threshold and gather him into your arms. His blood is on your clothes and on your hands, and you don't care. The lamentations of the crowd rise up around you, and the city shifts beneath your feet. What you once loved is gone. They will not get away with this. Look what they did to him, you say to the crowd, and you raise up the corpse's tunic. Beneath are the stab wounds, long and livid on his chest and belly. Look what they did to my husband, you cry, and you pull up the body, pull him up by the shoulders. He's heavy, but everyone has to see. Look well on what they did, you say, to him and to me and to all of us. A cry goes up among the crowd, and now it isn't grief, it's rage. You rip off your husband's tunic and you point out the wounds. You prop him up high where everyone can see. You roar your lamentation like a battle cry. This isn't desecration. This is what he would have wanted. Your husband would approve. Soon the mob is ready. They sweep up the body and carry it through the streets, shouting for vengeance. You lead them to the Senate House, to the place where he did his work. His work was your work. You and your husband once labored side by side, tramping from one end of the city to the other in a single day. In the tangled alleyways and towering insulae of Rome's roughest neighborhoods, you built your kingdom, and there was nowhere you could not go. Only the hallowed halls of the Senate were barred to you because you were a woman. But now there is none who can stop you. At the head of an angry mob, maddened with grief and rage, you tear out the benches, break legs off of tables, toss ornate carved chairs into the center of the room, bring armfuls of scrolls for kindling. You lay the body on top of the pile and set it alight. You stand at the center of the seething crowd and you watch the fire take him, flames reaching higher and higher, sparks falling all around you. The mob is crying for vengeance and you will give it to them. Your husband, Clodius, is dead. The mob belongs to you alone now and soon so will this city. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. The romance between Mark Antony and Cleopatra has beguiled us for centuries. It's a star-crossed story of two lovers who ruled, fought, and died in dangerous times. It's been rehashed by Shakespeare and Hollywood. What most people don't realize is that when Mark Antony met Cleopatra, he was already married to someone just as epic as Cleo. His wife's name was Fulvia. Her story is rarely ever told, but she was just as fascinating as Cleopatra and just as worthy of the Shakespeare and Hollywood treatment. Cleopatra was the undisputed ruler of Egypt, and for a while, Fulvia was the undisputed ruler of Rome. Cleopatra had glamour and divinity and lots of money, but Fulvia had the gangs. So let's set the scene here. Our last season was basically devoured by the whole life of Julius Caesar because, of course. It really was. It was completely just taken over by Julius Caesar. We didn't mean for it to go that way, but that's how it went. It did. We did 13 episodes on him. And that time period was right at the end of the Roman Republic from around 100 to 45 B.C. During that season, we talked a lot about the A-level players who lived and had their machinations during that time. Big, larger-than-life personalities like Caesar and Pompey and Crassus, Cicero, Cato, Mark Antony, Cleopatra, Servilia. The problem was, those were the stories of the people in the highest levels of the aristocracy. 
But there were a lot of people whose stories we didn't cover, mainly because we didn't want to confuse the narrative too much. And there's a lot of names and a lot of people. A lot of people's names start with C. Have you noticed this? Everybody's got a C name. Yeah, I know. Except for Servilia. Well, yeah. And Mark Antony and Pompey. Like there's literally two of them in that list we just read whose name doesn't start with C. And it's still like that when you go down like to the less famous people. There's a whole lot of C names. Oh, sure. When we get later in the Julian Claudians, you have Caligula and Claudia. I mean, it's confusing, especially if you're talking about it on a podcast where you don't see it written down, you're just hearing it. And it's just like, what is all these C sounds like? I can't even keep these people straight. So we just tried to simplify the narrative as much as possible in the middle of a complex narrative. So there were a lot of people whose names you didn't hear who, you, if you know the story well, you might have been expecting to hear. Absolutely. We couldn't tell all the stories at once and we can't tell everybody's story because it would just be too confusing. So in this episode, we're getting the chance to delve into the lives and actions of some of those people who weren't quite as well known in history, but whose actions affected that story profoundly. People who operated closer to the ground and closer to the common people of Rome. Fulvia was one of those people. Her life and career overlapped with Caesar's, and she had a lot in common with him. In conjunction with her husband, she even worked as one of his agents on the ground in Rome when he was out of town. So our time period here is roughly during Julius Caesar's lifetime, and like we said, Julius Caesar lived from 100 to 45 BC, and Fulvia became politically active probably starting in the early 60s BC, I'm estimating. We're not sure exactly when Fulvia was born. Wikipedia estimates 83 BC, about 17 years after Julius Caesar was born. But Wikipedia also says that her birth year is not known. So take all of this with an extreme grain of salt. Listen, Fulvia was such a badass and so good about lying about her age and her origins that much like my grandmother, because my grandmother did this as well, she was like 23 when she gave birth to her oldest child and her youngest child. So you figure that out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She's one of those people who's perpetually 25 or something. (laughs) I'm like that. I'm 25. I was 25 last year, 25 this year. Totally. I'm going to be 25 for the next four decades. Fine. Same. I could totally pull that off. Science and modern medical miracles will let me pull that off. Stay moisturized, Jen. Always. Hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. So at this time, the citizens of ancient Rome were divided into roughly two classes, patrician and plebeian. There were also non-citizen classes such as slaves and freedmen and freedwomen. The patricians were the wealthy upper class and the plebeians were everyone else except slaves and freedmen. They were craftsmen, soldiers, laborers, merchants, basically everybody who wasn't an aristocrat. So us, Jenny. We're plebeians to the core. Absolutely. For a long time in ancient Rome, only patricians were allowed to hold military and political power. But by Fulvia's day, that had changed. Fulvia's family was plebeian, but upper-class plebeian. Relatives of hers rose to the senatorial class and even served as consuls. But by the time Fulvia was born, her family wasn't particularly prominent. They were on the decline. Kind of like somebody else we know. Somebody we spent 13 episodes discussing, but his name just... Goes right out my head. What was that guy's name? Something about a salad. That's all I can remember. (laughs) Julius Caesar is not a salad. I have strong (laughs) feelings about that. I would, no, real talk. I was like eating when I was in the midst of, this is how crazy I get when I'm in the midst of an arc. Like I was out to lunch with some friends and someone ordered a Caesar salad and I was like, what? Julius Caesar isn't a salad. He was a person. People (laughs) thought I was nuts. People still think I'm nuts. This is what the podcast has done to me. We're going to move on. Okay, we're going to move on. It's not about Julius Caesar. No, this is not his story, Jenny. I've told you this. You need to leave him in season three. Bye, Caesar. We're done with you. He'll be back. Not at the moment. (laughs) So we know that Fulvia's grandfather, Sempronius, 
was kind of eccentric. He used to go stand in the rostra in flamboyant outfits and scatter his money among the people like, yeah. This detail comes from our favorite caddy guy, Cicero. And we know that Cicero had some bones to pick here. So I'm just like putting that salt lick out there now. Well, the thing about Cicero is that he's always got a bone to pick. Take it as, you know, really nasty gossip behind somebody's back that may or may not have any kind of grain of truth in it, but it's so colorful that we have to include it. Oh, we have to include it. And who knows? It may have all the truth in it, and we're just being deeply unfair to Cicero. Yeah, also, there's also that possibility. We also know that Fulvia's father may have had a speech impediment because he was nicknamed Bambalio, which meant to stutter. Mark Antony wasn't Fulvia's first husband. Her first husband was a guy named Clodius. Julius Caesar knew him. Clodius was the guy who snuck into the celebration of the Bonadilla to hook up with Caesar's second wife, Pompeia, in 62 BC. And we talk more about that in Julius Caesar in the Devil's Three-Way, which is the most appropriately named episode I think we've ever done. However, there's zero evidence that Pompeia ever had a thing to do with Clodius. But Caesar jumped her just based on the rumors because Caesar can be with whoever Caesar wants, but not Caesar's I roll. Fulvia and Clodius married that same year, the same year that he snuck in and pulled his shenanigans with the Bonadea in 62 BC. If you believe her Wikipedia birth date, she'd have been 21, and she is 21 thereafter, forever in perpetuity. Amen. Well done, Fulvia. Forever 21. And from the first, Fulvia proved to be ambitious. But since this was ancient Rome and women weren't supposed to be powerful in public, Fulvia couldn't wield power directly. She had to do it through men. She had to be the back channel. But... Fulvia was not a subtle velvet glove kind of back channel politician like Servilia, Julius Caesar's old girlfriend, because we cannot stop name dropping Julius Caesar because we know him. We do know him. He's exactly the way you'd expect him to be as well. Oh my God, he <laughs> totally is. Like it's third person and everything. Anyway, Fulvia was not a subtle velvet glove back channel politician with a light touch. She was more of a bludgeon. Plutarch says, quote, she was a woman who took no thought for spinning or housekeeping, nor would she deign to hold sway over a man of private station, but she wished to rule a ruler and command a commander. And I'm just going to say, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, but also maybe she wanted to be a ruler and be a commander because women can be things, you know? We don't have to always operate through men. That's why she gets the pejorative term dux femina. She was like, no, I am going to be a female general. And if you have problems with that, take it up with my gang. She basically just took initiative in her own life, which made her a female general. I guess if you're not lolling bonelessly on the couch most of the time, you're a female general. I'll take that. The bar is low. The bar is low. <laughs> Fulvia was a populist. In ancient Rome during the late Republic, there were basically two political parties, the best men ugh. Ugh, and the populari or populists. The best men ugh, ugh. were the conservative aristocracy. They were all filthy rich, owned massive slave plantations out in the countryside. They were called Latifundia. It was really messed up and basically existed to preserve their own power. The populari, on the other hand, derived their power from the common people. The most powerful populace could summon angry mobs at will to rough up their political opponents. Julius Caesar was a populist because we have to talk about him again. He's also a, a valuable touchstone because people know about him and those who've listened to those episodes that we did know more about his life. So like he's kind of an anchor, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, he's the kind of person who, like, you can't talk about populists and not bring him up. Fulvia was also a populist, and we have a feeling she was more comfortable in the working-class neighborhoods of Rome than in the lavish mansions of the wealthy classes. Interestingly, your social class and political affiliation weren't necessarily aligned. A lot of plebeians were populists and patricians were best men. Ugh. Ugh. But not all. For instance, Cicero, a very prominent best man, Ugh. came from a plebeian family, and Julius Caesar came from a patrician family. Rome had no police force at the time, and violent street gangs sometimes took control of public spaces in support of political candidates and causes. Some political leaders summoned soldiers, teams of gladiators, entourages of slaves, or their own angry mobs to keep order when needed. But at this time, one man saw the potential for consistent, rigorously applied gang violence as part of the political process and a pathway to power. And that man was Fulvia's first husband, Clodius. At least because he was a dude, Clodius is the one who gets credit for it. Surprise, surprise. Shocker. But there are clues in the ancient record that Fulvia was just as involved in all this as he was and may have been directing his efforts. Fulvia was sometimes described as androgyne, which was a word for women who seemed to embody what the Roman writers considered masculine qualities, such as strength, courage, leadership, military intelligence, basically any form of agency over their own lives, and not just flopping around bonelessly on the floor, waiting for somebody else to direct them to do things. She's also described as being more comfortable on a battlefield than fanning herself in the corner or whatever else women were supposed to be doing at that point in time. Cicero says Fulvia was always at Clodius aside, even goes so far as to make fun of Clodius for being constantly in his wife's company. He also says Clodius went everywhere with an entourage of sex workers and eunuchs, so I guess they had really interesting friends. They did. Wow, they really went across the strata there. I know, that's a pretty big strata, <laughs> actually. Damn street. And think about it. Maybe the sex workers knew everything that was going on. They were great people to give you information about what was going on in the city. I mean, I can see a whole spy network here. Yeah, Three years after her marriage to Clodius, in 59 BC, Clodius was elected tribune of the people. One of the first things he did was set up a free monthly grain dole for the people of Rome. He also revived a festival that was older than Rome itself, Compitalia, celebrated once a year right after Saturnalia. Yo, Saturnalia. Yo, Saturnalia. Praise Saturn. Praise Saturn. Don't leave me hanging. These two moves, the festival and the grain dole, were Fulvia and Clodius's foundation for building up their own army of professional street thugs. Hashtag relationship goals. And here's how they did it. First, the festival. Compitalia. This was a festival for the crossroads gods. And there were a lot of crossroads in Rome. And every crossroads had a god. So the proper way to celebrate Compitalia was to throw ruckus block parties on literally every block in the city. These had to be managed on the local level by the collegia, or individual organizations associated with trades. The collegia were, ostensibly, responsible for throwing the block parties. But in reality, they were fronts for the street gangs. Using his tribunal powers, Clodius removed the pre-existing restrictions on founding new collegia. He sent his own people to set up the collegia and train their members in the fine art of being street thugs. And because of the free grain dole, the street thugs didn't have to make a living doing something else. Clodius and Fulvia were deeply involved in establishing and organizing the collegia. They were building their base of power. Before long, no matter where they were in the city of Rome, Clodius and Fulvia could stomp their feet and summon an angry, violent mob anywhere in the city. This made them both very dangerous populists. 
And these two used their street gangs to seize and hold power in Rome. Here's how it worked. According to Richard A. Billows in his book, Julius Caesar, The Colossus of Rome, quote, Clodius's gangs could appear in force anywhere in the city at very short notice. And being trained street fighters, they easily beat and drove off the entourages of supporters, clients, and slaves with which other Roman politicians sought to enforce their wishes. Even veteran soldiers for all their military training, experience, and discipline found it hard to cope with Clodius's thugs with their specialized skills of fighting in the narrow streets and porticos and tenement blocks of Rome. Thus, Clodius became, during his tribunate, the king of the Roman streets. Anyone who crossed the Great Tribune found himself subjected to vicious harassment, such as being accosted in the street and beaten, being loudly booed and showered with filth at the games, even being besieged at home by gangs of thugs hurling rocks or even weapons at their house, at times going to the length of trying to set a house on fire. Under these circumstances, although most Roman nobles and senators disapproved to what Clodius was doing, opposition to him became muted and ineffective. This was organized crime at its roots. I mean, there's always been organized crime, but like they were kind of like mob bosses. Mob bosses that were controlling the legitimate government through open violence. Yeah, and mob bosses always had their own neighborhoods that their family took care of. Yeah. So what kind of place did this make Rome for the average person? I think this is a digression worth taking. When you visit ancient Rome today... Well, you visit modern Rome, but there's still, yeah. <laughs> still parts of Rome that are ancient, but it's you can't go back in time. I did not write that. <laughs> I did. I wrote it. It's my fault. <laughs> so when you visit Rome today, you see a city of glorious monuments, impressive fountains, and big, beautiful piazzas with epic views. That was not how the city was in Caesar's time. In Caesar's time, it was a city of narrow, filthy streets streets, constant noise, intense congestion, mostly of foot traffic, and towering tenement buildings that block out the sun. These tenement buildings were called insulae, and these were the slums of ancient Rome, massive apartment buildings that covered entire city blocks. These were some of the tallest buildings in the world at the time. They usually had shops and commercial space on the ground floor, and they may have as many as nine additional floors. The higher up you go, the more cramped your space and the more likely you were to die in a fire because these places were extremely flammable. Everyone cooked with fire and there were no fire escapes. And also there was the risk of collapse. Due to intense real estate speculation, these buildings were often thrown up quickly, were badly constructed, and frequently collapsed on their occupants. <clears throat> Crassus, who made his wealth on real estate speculation, one said that when one of his buildings collapsed, he was happy for the opportunity to build a new insula and charge higher rent. What a guy. <laughs> so there were a lot of insulae. According to land records, by the 200 CE, so about 250 years after the time period we're in right now, there were almost 47,000 insulae in ancient Rome, skyscrapers that occupied entire city blocks, each one like its own elevated village, separated by narrow, filthy streets. During the day, the streets were impossibly crowded, so bad that Julius Caesar banned all wheeled transport from dawn to dusk while he was dictator, which meant shop deliveries only happened at night, which made the nighttime streets very, 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 very 
very noisy. But at night, the streets were dangerous. There was no lighting, no police force, and plenty of people willing to cut your purse if you were lucky or your throat if you weren't. Going out at night for fun wasn't really a thing. The satirist Juvenile, who was a satirist, so take this with a grain of salt, once cracked that you'd be an idiot to go out to dinner in ancient Rome without first making a will. But cut purses and congestion weren't the only things you had to worry about. There was also the mob violence that engulfed entire neighborhoods sometimes. Billows paints us a picture where that mob violence permeated poor ancient Roman neighborhoods. Fulvia and Clodius's mobs were specially trained to fight in the narrow streets and tenement blocks. You could be a regular person in that insula and find there's a mob war going on in the marketplace where you buy your groceries, in the narrow streets just outside your door, or even in your hallway. It's probably accurate to say that while big-name politicians ran things on the macro level in Rome, the mobs were in control on the street level. The mobs ran the streets, and Fulvia and Clodius ran the mobs. So, like we said before, Clodius was elected tribune of the people in 59 BC. Not long after, in 58 BC, Julius Caesar went to Gaul, which was approximately modern-day France, and started a war that would go on for eight years. We covered this war in three-part series, Vercingetorix, All You Love Must Burn, parts one, two, and three, if you are interested in that. Caesar, at this point, had been consul once. He was definitely up and coming, but he was nowhere near dictator status yet. He had not crossed the Rubicon. This stuff had not happened. But just because Caesar left town didn't mean he was planning to let go of his influence in Rome. Caesar was a patron to, i.e. financially and socially supported, a lot of up-and-coming B- and C-level politicians in the city who he counted on to thwart his enemies. Enemies who didn't like what Caesar was doing in Gaul and wanted to strip him of his power while he was out of town. Clodius was one of his tools, and by Clodius, we also mean Fulvia, working behind the scenes to make sure her husband succeeded. When Caesar left town, Clodius took steps to defang Caesar's enemies and his own. Enemies like Cicero, who opposed Clodius every chance he got, and also claimed Clodius was sleeping with his own sister during a trial. There was a lot of bad blood between them. Absolutely. And incest was something that you see a lot in ancient cultures, and maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, but especially in Rome, it tended to get... Oh, I think it did happen, for sure. Well, it tended to get thrown around when you really wanted to discredit someone. And we talked about this when we talked about the ancient world Stark family, because we see it again and again being just chucked out there. And maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Yeah, any individual accusation of incest you have to take with a little bit of a grain of salt, depending on where you're getting the info, but on the other hand... And it was also kind of a time-honored tradition in some cultures in the ancient world of looking at the Ptolemies here, looking at the Julio-Claudians here. So I would say that it, it also did happen. Yeah, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying when you see these public accusations of incest, sometimes it's to discredit someone. Sometimes it's some nasty gossip from Cicero. I mean, Cicero was the king of nasty gossip. He was so catty. He was such a mean girl. So Clodius retaliated to these accusations by enacting a law that said anyone who executed a Roman citizen without a trial or anyone who had done it in the past had to be exiled. And this law directly targeted Cicero because four years earlier, when Cicero was consul, he'd had the Catiline conspirators executed without a trial. And we talk about the Catiline conspiracy more in Julius Caesar and the Devil's Three-Way. So we're not going to rehash the whole story here, but just to give you a very basic Basic background. Catiline was another Roman politician and a populist, a kind of off-brand Caesar. 
he lost an election, couldn't pay off his creditors, and decided to take over the republic. Like you do. Listen, Sally Mae comes knocking at your door, clearly take over the American government. It's just the only only thing to be done. Right. I've had that thought. You've had that thought. We've all had that thought. I've <laughs> had that thought many times. But his plot went awry, and he and his fellow conspirators were caught and executed without a trial, which a lot of people saw as a huge miscarriage of justice because everyone in Rome was supposed to get their day in court. And interestingly enough, Fulvia was the person who'd blown the whistle about about the Catalan conspirators. At that time, before she was married to Clodius, Fulvia was hooking up with a guy named Quintus Curious. Notice the C names. She may have been 17 at this time, if you believe Wikipedia, which we don't, so she was just 21 at all times. She was starting to get bored with Curious, and Curious started to turn overbearing and abusive, intermixed with elaborate apologies and lavish promises, which is not cool. Sallust says, quote, he suddenly fell to boasting, began to promise her seas and mountains, and sometimes to threaten his mistress with the steel if she did not bow to his will. The steel. The steel. I will give you the steel if you do not do what I want. I mean, that's pretty shitty. I mean, ugh. ugh terrible. I mean, the wording is funny, but the actual meaning behind what he's saying is awful. Yes. So Curious was a was a trash fire. Anyway, Fulvia did a little digging into these lavish promises that Curious was making all over the place all of a sudden and realized a conspiracy was afoot led by Catiline, who was running for consul at the time. Consul was the highest position you could have in the Roman government, by the way, so it was an important position. Except for dictator for life. Like, let's be honest, Jenny. <laughs> well, yeah, but dictator for life isn't supposed to be a position. Like, it's not a legit position. That was a nickname Julius Caesar gave himself. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds better than king, but that's what he wanted to be. Fulvia took her intelligence to Cicero, and working together, the two managed to entrap Curious and implicate Catiline. So, Fulvia and Cicero had worked together before, but now Cicero was standing in the way of her and Clodius's complete citywide street gang domination plan, a different kind of takeover than the one Catiline had planned, and a more effective one. I mean, the bar is low, though. Like, if you listen to the part we did on the Catiline conspiracy, like, let's just say plotting and planning was not one of his strong suits. <laughs> it was a wild plan that I am not surprised did not work. <laughs> right. It was just like overly complicated and made absolutely no sense to the point where I was reading it over and thinking either this is mistranslated or I'm just not understanding it. Go listen to the episode. You'll see why I'm saying that. Anyway, this time with Fulvia against him, Cicero didn't stand a chance. When Clodius's new law was passed, Cicero dressed in mourning, presenting himself before the Roman crowds as a supplicant in torn clothes with his face unshaven. This was, according to Anthony Everett's Cicero, the life and times of Rome's greatest politician, kind of a recognized routine a politician would sometimes go through if they found themselves in serious trouble, which Cicero was, especially when they were being prosecuted. Most of the senators were on Cicero's side and were appalled by this legislation, but the consuls, one of whom was Caesar's father-in-law, were coolly unsympathetic to Cicero's dramatic display. And then Clodius's professional thugs surrounded the Senate building, forcing most of the pro-Cicero senators to flee the building in fear, tearing out their clothes in grief. Yeah, they would have been surrounding the Senate building, yelling and screaming and hurling things at the building and threatening to set everything on fire and generally being violent and scary. So Cicero went into exile, 
The day he left, just to rub it in, Clodius pushed through a law saying Cicero wasn't allowed to come within 400 miles of Rome, which I think is really overkill. Then Clodius and Fulvia unleashed their angry mobs on Cicero's properties, burning down his two country homes and his fancy house on the Palatine Hill in Rome. In addition to seating the Senate with B and C-level players like Clodius who were loyal to him, Julius Caesar had formed an alliance before he left with Rome's two most powerful people, the great general Pompey and the obscenely rich real estate douchebag Crassus. This was the first triumvirate, or as we like to call it, the devil's three-way. Was... <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, what else are you going to call it? It was always an uneasy partnership, though. And when Poppy started making noises about having Cicero recalled from exile, Clodius and Fulvia sent their angry mobs against Poppy. And Poppy spent five months barricaded in his own house. God. Poppy eventually got fed up and tapped another tribune, a guy named Milo, to do something about Clodius's street gangs. Milo brought in ex-gladiators and gladiator trainers to build his own gang of professional street thugs. I love this. Pompey looked at this entire situation and goes, what this situation needs is more street thugs. Oh, yeah. We need more fighting in the streets. That's the only way we're going to stop the fighting in the streets. I just think we should just add more professional street thugs to this mix because that's clearly what we're missing here. No, this is great. This is one of the best plans I've ever heard. So now, thanks to Pompey, there were two highly trained, supercharged mob armies roving the streets of Rome, and I see absolutely nothing wrong with this plan. No, it's not like he poured more gasoline on the fire. No. One of the best plans Pompey has ever come up with. So you can guess what happened next. Things got completely out of hand. What we had next was a full-on street war waged for years, engulfing the whole city. So the interesting thing about this is eventually Pompey was named sole consul in order to control the street gang wars. And Pompey was basically the one who put gasoline on the fire in the first place. Maybe that was the plan all along. He created the situation. He can defuse the situation because he also has a lot of military might. Maybe this was his plan. Interesting. He's either being very dumb or very calculating here. So for years, Milo and Clodius fought it out in the streets of Rome with their rival gangs. It lasted so long and got so bad that four years later, in 53 BC, elections were delayed twice. It was still going on at full capacity four years later. Throughout it all, Fulvia and Clodius were busy plotting, planning, passing their legislation, and intimidating their enemies, all while leading the most vicious mob wars Rome had ever seen. They were joined at the hip, except one time. The day was January 18th, 52 BC. Julius Caesar had been in Gaul for six years, doing what Julius Caesar does in Gaul. Ugh. Clodius had left town briefly and was coming home via the Appian Way, Rome's main thoroughfare. He had 30 armed slaves with him, but Fulvia wasn't with him. This was unusual enough for Cicero to remark on it later. Coincidentally, as Clodius made his way toward Rome, Milo, the leader of the rival gang, was traveling out of the city on the same route with an escort of gladiators. Milo does not go anywhere without an escort of gladiators. That's how I would want to travel, too. It's either a luxury yacht flotilla like Cleopatra or an escort of gladiators like Milo. I don't see why we can't have both at the same time. Right. I would just like to travel the streets of Rome in a luxury yacht flotilla surrounded by gladiators. So the two men met about 11 miles outside of the city. And at first, it seemed like they'd pass each other without an incident. Maybe even with a cool, distant nod like, I see you. Like, you know, dudes do that sometimes. Sup. Totally. But 
As their entourages passed by, a small group at the end of each started to tussle. Clodius turned back to see what was going on and was struck by a javelin thrown by one of Milo's gladiators. Clodius was injured, but he wasn't quite dead yet. Not quite dead yet. I think I'll go for a walk. Please don't put me on the cart. (laughs) I feel happy. I feel happy. Okay, we're done. My British accent is really bad. So he wasn't quite dead yet. His followers took him to a nearby inn to recover, but Milo decided that this was just too good an opportunity to pass up. He and his gladiators drove off Clodius's entourage, dragged Clodius out of the inn, and stabbed him to death in the street. His body was then dumped by the side of the road, where it lay for hours until a passing senator saw and recognized it. The senator had the corpse sent back to Rome in his own litter. Clodius's dead body arrived at his house that day, and Fulvia was there to meet it. A large crowd of people gathered around the corpse and began to lament. Fulvia fanned the flames of grief, propping her husband up where everyone could see him clearly and pointing out his wounds in case anyone missed them. Fulvia whipped up the crowd into a frenzy and then led them through the streets, carrying her husband's naked corpse and attracting more mourners along the way until she reached the forum. There, Fulvia and an angry, grieving mob pulled down benches and risers and tables and stenographers' books and scrolls and built a funeral pyre in the Senate House and then and burned the entire Senate building down in the process of cremating Clodius. That is hardcore! We talked about this event back in Julius Caesar and the point of no return. This was the event where an angry mob burned down the Senate House, and as a result, Pompey was appointed sole consul and flooded the streets with his own soldiers, who weren't supposed to even be in Rome because of the rules of the Imperium, but this was a special circumstance that maybe Pompey made for himself. Pompey was being crazy as a fox in a Spartan shirt. Absolutely. He was a Spartan shirt fox. We all know it. Call it when we see it. Pompey was then appointed sole consul to keep order. And Pompey being sole consul was unheard of. Every consul needs a co-consul. But this was how bad things were getting. But even as Pompey was taking control in Rome, Fulvia stepped fully into her own power. As the grieving widow of the fierce populist leader, she was now in sole command of Rome's most violent street gangs. And she avenged her husband and raised her status in the eyes of the people by giving evidence in the trial against Milo. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Cicero defended Milo. He was back from exile by now. Cicero was the leading orator in his day. If you found yourself in legal trouble in ancient Rome, in the late Republic, Cicero was the guy you wanted to defend you. But this trial was a little different than usual. It was a trial for the murder of a gang leader, and the whole gang was in attendance. Pompey's soldiers were there also, ostensibly to keep the peace. But meanwhile, flashing their weapons around and making it super dangerous and super scary and reminding you that, like, if you got out of line, like, we have a sword and you have a body and it could be stabbed. The stabby stab is imminent. Put the feet out of line. And... This all made Cicero very twitchy. It would make me very twitchy. So Cicero, not known for nerves of steel. 
<laughs> you could see how nervous he was in the speech he published afterward, the pro Malone, which later became famous. He spends quite a bit of time in the beginning of this speech talking about the scary looking soldiers and the ominous mobs in the room and declaring that he was not intimidated and he would not be intimidated, which definitely meant that he was very intimidated. He was totally terrified. His little knees were knocking together under his toga. I bet he had bony knees. Little knees. They were really loud, like little like um castanets. Exactly. <laughs> During the trial, the prosecution, which was Fulvia's side, the people trying Milo for the murder of Clodius, went first, and Fulvia was called to give testimony last among the prosecutor's round of witnesses. Whatever Fulvia said, it moved the jury to tears and whipped up the angry mob into a howling mass of rage. Rage. Into the howling mass of rage stepped Cicero to defend Milo. In the published version of his defense, the pro Malone, Cicero points out that since Fulvia was usually always with Clodius, except the day he was killed, that was evidence that Clodius was actually planning to attack Milo and Milo killed him in self-defense. I just call bullshit, Cicero. You don't know why she wasn't there. Maybe she wasn't feeling well. Maybe she had ancient world food poisoning. Wasn't necessarily an attack, although let's be honest, crazy like a fox probably was. I think it's pretty healthy not to be joined at the hip as a couple. Like, it's okay to do your own thing once in a while. I've been married for quite a few years. And I have to say, one of the reasons my marriage works is that we are independent people who do our own things. Maybe Fulvia and Clodius had had this conversation where they were like, we are just way too codependent right now. Why don't you take a day to do your thing with your angry mobs? And I'll take a day to do my own thing with my own angry mobs. And we'll just, you know, come back later and talk about how great it was. So... The argument that Fulvia wasn't there, and that meant that Clodius was planning an attack on Milo, was the argument Cicero wanted to make. But actually, the pro Malone is probably closer to what Cicero wished he said than what actually came out of his very anxious mouth. Cicero published most of his legal arguments after his trials, basically repurposing his content. And other people who knew him called him on this too, saying that what he published often bore little resemblance to the speech he actually gave. There was a good reason for that this time. By the time Cicero stepped forward to speak in Milo's defense, Fulvia had worked the mob into a very hostile state. Pompey's soldiers were barely keeping order. The mob couldn't physically attack Cicero, but they shouted him down so viciously that Cicero choked. The prosecution won, Milo was sent into exile, and Cicero held a grudge against Fulvia forever. Nobody holds grudges like Cicero. So that was in 52 BC. Not too long after, probably the same year, Fulvia married again this time to a man named Curio. Curio was initially one of the best men. Ugh. Ugh. But five minutes after marrying Fulvia, he executed a heel-faced turn, taking up the populist cause and becoming a champion of Clodius's old policies. It was clear that Fulvia was behind Curio's new populist passion, and Curio's popularity and influence surged after he married Fulvia. He was basically a nobody before, but now people like Caesar were paying attention to him. But Curio didn't last long. He was killed in 49 BC, fighting in Caesar's army against King Juba in North Africa. So just to zoom out and give you some broader context here, Julius Caesar came back from Gaul and crossed the Rubicon in 49 BC, essentially taking over the whole of Italy and displacing the existing Roman government. And we talk about how and why that happened in Julius Caesar and the point of no return. This kicked off a civil war with Caesar on one side and Pompey and the rest of the best men. Ugh. On the other, Caesar defeated Pompey in battle and then defeated Cato and the rest of the best men, ugh, ugh. 
in North Africa, which is where Fulvia's second husband, Curio, died. Somewhere in there, Julius Caesar went to Alexandria, met Cleopatra, fell head over heels in love, and fought the Alexandrian War, which solidified Cleopatra's hold over Ptolemaic Egypt. This whole process took about three years from 49 to 46 BC, even though it feels like I said that over the course of three years. It didn't. I feel like I was rambling for three years there. I mean, that's basically the sum up of this podcast. Jenny and Jen ramble for three years, although it hasn't been three years yet. Feels like it, though. Sometimes it does. During those three years, Caesar left his right-hand man, Mark Antony, in charge of Rome, holding down the fort, gallivanting around town in a chariot pulled by lions, sleeping with the water of Rome's leading citizens and having an affair with an actress, which was scandalous. Also, barfing in the Senate House and being hangover so bad that there is nothing it will cure except more booze. Nursing epic hangovers. Pretty much. There's absolutely no checks on Mark Antony right now. No, there is no checks and it's just all a hot, vomit-filled mess. Many of the remaining best men and other leading citizens fled Rome when it was clear Caesar had won the Civil War. But Fulvia stayed, and at some point, Mark Antony and Fulvia must have caught each other's attention. Because in 47 BC, while Caesar was still in Alexandria with Cleopatra, banging in their love shack, Mark Antony and Fulvia got married. He's like, I see a powerful woman who could really help me control the people. And for some reason, she doesn't mind that I vomit on everything in front of me. And let's just do it. Let's get married. She tolerates my vomiting. What else can I ask for? It's more than he deserves. It was the third marriage for both of them. And it's clear their relationship was passionate. Apparently, at one point before they married, Antony deserted a military post to hand deliver a love letter to Fulvia, swearing that he'd broken things off with the actress he'd been dating or seeing or banging casually, they weren't putting a label on it, and that all his affections were firmly fixed on her. I mean, I wouldn't put a label on it if I was seeing Mark Antony either, so I don't blame her. Oh, God. I don't think I'd admit to it if I was seeing Mark Antony. No, I'd be deeply embarrassed. <laughs> like, all my friends would be like, really, that guy? You should love who you love, but that would be a lot of hate love for me. <laughs> that could be fun, though. <laughs> totally. Plutarch says that, quote, Cleopatra was indebted to Fulvia for teaching Antony to endure a woman's sway since she took him over quite tamed and schooled at the outset to obey women. Okay. Ugh. Plutarch has emerged from his drug haze to tell us something misogynist. Go back to your flying ointment. I've had enough of you already. Anyway, so Plutarch also tells us that Antony tried to get Fulvia to lighten up a little bit by playing fun, practical jokes on her. Like the one time Antony left town to go right out and meet Caesar as he returned from fighting one of his battles against the Sons of Pompey, which was actually the last battle of the Civil War. Rumors started up that actually Caesar had died and his enemies were marching toward Rome. And in the midst of all that, Somebody knocked on Fulvia's door. She opened it to see a messenger with his face covered by his cloak who told her that he had a letter from Antony. Fulvia, beside herself with worry, asked if Antony was still alive, and the messenger didn't reply, just handed her the letter. Visibly distressed, Fulvia started to read it, whereupon the messenger tossed aside his cloak, threw his arms around her, and kissed her. It was Antony. Not cool. That is not a funny joke. No, that's awful. If my husband did that to me, I would be furious with him. Yeah, I would sock him one. That's really mean. He wouldn't do that. It's not funny. Not funny, Antony. Anyway, like we said before, Antony was currently keeping the peace in Rome. (laughs) I say that with a question mark. For Caesar, while Caesar was off handling other shit. But Antony was not so good at keeping order. It's like the understatement of the the late Republic. (laughs) 
Ancient Rome, at this time, had a debt problem. We touched on this briefly in our Caesar episodes. There had just been a violent civil war, half the population was dead or fled, and everyone's mortgages were upside down because nobody wanted to live in the city, even in a fancy brownstone. There was a debt crisis in the city, and people were calling for new tablets, or a widespread program of debt forgiveness. The tribune of the people at this time, still 47 BC, was a guy named Dolabella. He used to be a friend of Mark Antony's, but the two had a falling out when Dolabella started sleeping with Antony's wife. That was Antony's second wife, the one before Fulvia, and the one who Antony was definitely cheating on with an actress. For sure, and also he kicked his second wife out of the house when he found out that Dolabella was sleeping with her, because she doesn't get to sleep with other people, only Mark Antony does. As Tribune, Dolabella wanted to fix the debt problem, so he proposed sweeping debt forgiveness for everyone. I mean, I approve. However, Antony opposed this, because he thought Caesar wouldn't like it. And also, Dolabella had slept with his wife. So, you know, fuck all, you're not going to get your way, Dolabella, even if it is a good plan. Dolabella responded by summoning street gangs to take the forum by force, which, this is a pretty dumb move, Dolabella. Do you know who he's married to? Have you met Fulvia? She runs these streets. So with Fulvia's help, Antony marshaled a corps of professional street thugs and blocked Dolabella from the forum. In the ensuing gang wars, approximately 800 people were killed, but Antony won with Fulvia's help. Caesar returned to Rome for good in 46 BC and was murdered by a conspiracy of his own friends, allies, soldiers, and enemies in 45 BC. We talk about that at length in Julius Caesar and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, so we're not going to go too much into depth with it here, but one aspect of Caesar's death bears a second look his funeral. After Caesar's death, but before his funeral, public opinion on his assassination swung wildly. For a few days to maybe a week, the timeline is kind of fuzzy, so I'm sort of guessing there, the conspirators and the Caesarian faction, or Caesar supporters, waged a war of public speeches in a desperate attempt to control the narrative about what had happened to Caesar, because whoever controlled the narrative controlled what would happen next with the Republic. Antony was part of the Caesarian faction, but he wasn't exactly known for his tact or his eloquence. I thought that we couldn't top the other understatement, but here we have. (laughs) We've mentioned it before, but Antony was a bludgeon. The conspirators, meanwhile, had Cicero on their side. And as we've said before, Cicero was perhaps the most persuasive orator the Republic had ever seen, except when his knees were knocking and he didn't get his words out and choked. For a while, it looked like Cicero and the conspirators were going to win. Cicero did super, super well as long as nobody was yelling at him. Is the takeaway here, guys. The takeaway here is that Cicero does great when he's just, just him in a room writing down what he wished he'd said. But then, then came Caesar's funeral. Caesar's funeral was an extremely effective act of political theater. And when you think back to Clodius's funeral all that time ago, this whole show has Fulvia's fingerprints all over it. Like the luminal would just light up and it would be like, Fulvia did it. Definitely don't want to douse the ancient world in luminal because you just don't want to know what you're going to see. So, like Fulvia did with Clodius seven years before, Antony delivered a very emotional speech. He displayed Caesar's wounds to a volatile crowd. He ripped Caesar's toga off, waved it around on a spear, and propped up the naked body so everyone could see what the conspirators had done. He then raised a wax model of Caesar's body, complete with realistic stab wounds, and rotated around on a system of pulleys so no one in the back would miss it. The wax model and the system of pulleys just gets me every time. (laughs) 
I just love that he's like, for the people in the back. <laughs> <laughs> look what they did to Caesar. Just look. I made it so big. <laughs> I made a giant wax model. Look at it. I made it so you can all see. <laughs> it's very, very realistic. It's like Madame Tussauds, like way too realistic wax model. <laughs> I really hope they gave him a loincloth. That's all I'm going to say. I can't guarantee that they did, Jen. Like with Clodius, the crowd seized up Caesar's corpse and carried it to the forum. For the people in the back, help me grab this corpse! (laughs) For the people in the back! (laughs) I can get through this, I swear. Where the Senate House still hadn't been rebuilt after Clodius's mob burned it down seven years ago. The Senate House was still burned down after Clodius's trash fire of a funeral, which is why Caesar was stabbed to death in the Partico of Pompey and not in the actual Senate House. Okay, but let's be honest, they were a rough seven years. There was no time to rebuild anything. So the Senate House was still a smoking blackened ruin because of Clodius's funeral. Anyway, like with Clodius... The crowd seized up Caesar's corpse and carried it to the forum where the Senate house still hadn't been rebuilt after Clodius's mob burned it down. Like with Clodius, they then raided the public buildings, throwing benches, tables, scrolls, furniture, and anything flammable they could find into a giant pile to make Caesar's funeral pyre. Like at Clodius's funeral, public buildings got burned down during Caesar's cremation. And like with Clodius's funeral, things afterward got completely out of hand, with angry mobs flooding the streets, burning down houses, and killing people they thought were part of the conspiracy to murder Caesar, although the victims in this case were actually innocent. Caesar's funeral turned the tide of public opinion, and Caesar's assassins never got back control of the narrative. We don't have proof of this, but it's screamingly obvious to us that Fulvia had a hand in this, coaching Antony on how to run a rabble-rousing funeral. She may also have marshaled her gangs to help whip up the crowd. So... Fulvia still had the street gangs at her back, and Antony was the unofficial political heir of the ultimate mob whisperer himself, Julius Caesar. Both were political bludgeons and goddamn war elephants with a talent for letting things get completely out of hand. Together, these two were dangerous. I mean, that's again an understatement, Jenny. (laughs) I know, I've taught myself yet again. After Caesar's funeral, Antony emerged as the leader of the Caesarian faction. Even though he was never named in Caesar's will, he began to rapidly shore up his position as the rightful heir to Caesar's power, even helping himself to most of Caesar's fortune, which had been left to an 18-year-old grandnephew named Octavian. Caesar's widow, Calpurnia, had bequeathed Caesar's private papers to Antony after her husband's death, and Antony and Fulvia weaponized them. They used Caesar's papers as a pretext to push through any legislation they wanted, claiming that they were only doing what Caesar had wanted according to these papers, but not showing these papers to anyone. Very convenient. Hmm... Fulvia wielded considerable power in Rome, both through her husband and on her own. She pushed Antony to introduce a number of reforms originally proposed by Clodius. And she also lost no opportunity to enrich herself. Cicero, our catty aunt, (laughs) our catty catty maiden aunt who knows all the good gossip and has the best wine. I am the catty maiden aunt in my family, and I will certify that I have the best wine. Uh, And all the best gossip. Come on, Jenny. This is a massive compliment. Right. (laughs) Cicero describes Sylvia auctioning off whole client kingdoms in Antony's living room. Like a boss. Antony was good at whipping things up into a frenzy. But as we've mentioned before, tact was sadly not one of his talents. Within about a year of being the major power in Rome, Antony had managed to piss off 
everyone. The conservative senatorial class, the Caesarian faction, the angry mobs, Caesar's remaining legions. Everyone was like, fucking Mark Antony, I'm going to kick his ass. So to make things worse, in the summer of 44 BC, a year and a few months after Caesar's assassination, the 18-year-old Octavian rolled back into town looking for his inheritance. So here's where Octavian comes into the story. Octavian was the son of Caesar's niece, Atia, making him Caesar's grandnephew. But Caesar had formally adopted the boy in his will and made him heir to his vast fortune. Octavian wasn't particularly physical. As a kid, he was smart and bookish and kind of small and sickly, like I was. And throughout his life, he was known for conveniently getting sick whenever an important battle happened, even those he was supposed to be leading. But he'd impressed Caesar when, at the age of 17, he'd sailed to join Caesar in Spain to fight Pompey's son. This was the last battle Caesar fought. Octavian took a boat to Spain, but was shipwrecked in enemy territory. He managed to cross it to get to Caesar's camp, avoiding enemy patrols, and this impressed Caesar. Maybe he even reminded him a little of himself, because this is totally what Caesar would have done. And when he returned to Rome, Caesar rewrote his will to make Octavian his heir. At first, Antony didn't take Octavian seriously, and that was a big mistake, because Octavian was extremely politically astute, even at 18. So Octavian was like, that inheritance is rightfully mine. And he asked Antony to give it to him. Not for himself. No, 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 no. But so that he could fulfill all the promises Caesar had made in his will. Further payouts to his veterans and the Roman public. And of course, Antony just brushed Octavian off. So without missing a beat, Octavian raised the funds himself and showered Caesar's old veterans and the angry mobs with loot. Then he started going around calling himself Caesar because he was the real Caesar's adopted son, not Antony, me. Over the next few months, it became increasingly clear that Antony and Fulvia had an Octavian problem. Octavian was encroaching on Antony's turf, the unofficial heir to Caesar's political legacy. Octavian had partnered up with Cicero and egged the famous orator into unleashing a blistering tirade in the Senate, a series of 14 speeches completely trashing Mark Antony, which he called the Philippics. He basically accused Antony of being an enemy of the Republic. He painted Fulvia with an even worse brush. Remember, Cicero had that beef with Fulvia that went all the way back to Milo's trial, and probably even before that, to when he tangled with Clodius and got himself exiled. So Cicero was like, oh yes, I've been nurturing this grudge for so long, I'm gonna cultivate it and make wine. Oh, yes. And I will call that wine the Philippics. Those grapes went sour and now I'm going to get drunk. Goddamn right. Cicero mentions this one time when Fulvia traveled with Antony to a military camp in Brundisium to put down a soldier's rebellion. I mean, that's like their idea of a fun weekend getaway. I mean, the thing is, who else was going to put down the soldier's rebellion? Like Octavian wasn't. Yeah, he showered people with lots of money and loot, but he doesn't have that authority. Also, he didn't want to put down the rebellion because it's in his interests. Totally. The background here is that some of Caesar's former legions were starting to defect to Octavian, and this particular group of soldiers was trying to play Octavian and Antony off each other to see which one would pay more for their loyalty. Some leaders would have showered these guys with cash. Julius Caesar would have emotionally manipulated them back into the fold. Antony chose to decimate them. Decimation was an archaic and brutal punishment where the legions are forced to count off by ten and every tenth man would be beaten to death by his fellow soldiers using their bare hands. 
These guys live very close to each other in Contabernia, which were groups of eight, sharing tents and meals, relying on each other in battle, being punished and rewarded as a unit. They were very close. And again, that's probably a big understatement. So it would have been as much a punishment for the living as the dead. So Antony went to Brundisium to decimate these troops. And Fulvia came along with him because, you know, joined at the hips. And also like romantic getaway, you know, like it's a work trip, but they're going to make it also a fun trip. Cicero describes how Antony, quote, massacred the chosen centurions in the lap of his wife, who was not only most avaricious, but also cruel. Cicero paints a vivid picture of blood splattering on Fulvia's cheeks while she and Antony laughed at the executions before the two of them went on a killing spree against the non-combatant citizens of the town. Yeah, and consider your source here. I know, he's got a major axe to grind. He's got a raging anti-Fulvia agenda. It's so raging. We can see it through that loose-fitting toga. It's so obvious, Cicero. (laughs) So... As we mentioned, Cicero was probably exaggerating, and you have to take the Philippics with a grain of salt. But something must have happened because Antony's legions continued to defect Octavian. Antony was feeling a little insecure. And what do high-ranking men in Rome do when they feel insecure, Jenny? Well, they skip town, grab a plum provincial governorship, and use it to build up their military strength through conquest. Oh, yeah. I've seen that before somewhere. Antony had his sights set on Gaul, but the Senate wouldn't let him go. You can't go, Antony. We need you to stay here and continue to make everything worse so that we can eventually exile and execute you. It's all part of Octavian's 12-point plan. Can you just, like, go with the 12-point plan that leads to your own execution, please? Please don't make this more difficult than it already has to be because dealing with you is quite difficult. I mean, it's already 12 steps, so, like, just don't add any more steps. It's really, really breaking our brains. So Antony marshaled what remained of Caesar's legions and marched off to go take Gaul for himself. Thing was, another Roman was already in charge of Gaul, a guy named Decimus. He refused to cede his governorship to Antony, so Antony declared war. And the Senate lost its shit over this. Cicero pushed ferociously to get Antony named an enemy of the Roman people, which if we look back to how this played out when Caesar was named an enemy of the Roman people, way back in Julius Caesar and the point of no return, this would have meant that the entire peninsula of Italy would have been legally obligated to rise up in war against Antony if he crossed back into Italy. So it would have been bad news for Antony. But here's the thing. Antony had a secret weapon, Fulvia. Fulvia was still in Rome, and she worked tirelessly to thwart Cicero. She spent all night making the rounds, visiting senators personally, and pleading her husband's case. In the morning, she met the senators on the road to the forum, wearing mourning clothes and speaking lamentations. Despite a fiery speech from Cicero, one of the Philippics, Antony was not declared an enemy of the people. But the Senate did send an army, headed up by Octavian, although probably it was really Agrippa, Octavian's best friend, and the real military mind behind all his battles, who at this point was also a teenager. Octavian and Agrippa were there to smack some sense into Antony. They defeated him at the Battle of Mutina. Antony didn't stay down for long, though. He turned around and immediately joined forces with another of Caesar's former right-hand men, Lepidus, who right this moment was governing Transalpine Gaul, which was the strip of land in southern France, south of Caesar's region of Gaul. Teaming up with Lepidus made Antony leader of the largest army in the field by a lot. Suddenly, the situation had changed, and Octavian got really interested in forming an alliance. I mean, after all, Antony and Octavian were both Caesarians, and they both basically wanted the same thing when you got right down to it, wiping the quote-unquote liberators, the political faction aligned with Caesar's assassins, 
off the face of the earth. I mean, geez, Jen, I wonder why Antony and Octavian hated each other to begin with. Maybe it's because Mark Antony took my inheritance. That was all my money and my plans. Maybe I was Caesar's right-hand man for 20 years and I did all the hard work and then he just plucked you out of obscurity and made you his heir for no reason and that's fine. That's fine. I'm fine. I'm not bitter. That's just petty shit. I actually don't think it's that petty. (laughs) This is what Caesar wanted. I'm younger. I'm smarter. I have already run rings around you. And the only reason you are not dead and exiled is because of your wife. I don't need my wife to stand up for me. I mean, who's going to marry you anyway, Octavian, number one? Because you're just such a humorless, misogynist pisshole. And number two, I'm the one who did all the hard work. I fought with Caesar at Elysia. I went back to Rome and defended his interests. I was his veto hammer. I did all the shit. I held down Rome while he was off fighting his wars. Barfing on everything is not easy. I had to stay hydrated with booze. And look what it got me. Look what it got me. Listen, old man. (laughs) Oh, oh. You're a relic of the old government. Caesar knew exactly what he was doing when he made me his heir. I'm in charge and you can either get in line or you can get murdered. I think I'm going to take my chances, Octavian. First off, you're always out sick for your battles. I don't think you know which end of a knife to stick in me. I don't need to do it myself. (laughs) Moving on. That was pretty great, though. Okay, moving on. (laughs) As we threaten to kill each other. We've ended that conversation at each other's throats. I'm pretty into it. So Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus form the second triumvirate, which you can already see is doomed. But... At the moment, this was an alliance with one goal and one goal only. Make Caesar's murderers and all their friends and all their family members wish they'd never been born. Fulvia helped form this alliance, and to solidify it, she gave her daughter with Clodius, Clodia Pultra, to Octavian in marriage. Clodia would have been about 13, and Octavian was 19, so just as with the first triumvirate, we see this agreement sealed with some marriages to teenagers. I guess at least Octavian was technically still a teenager? Like 19 instead of 45 or something. Everything's still terrible. Do you not condone that in any way, shape, or form? This new alliance proved unstoppable. The triumvirs marched on Rome in August of 43 BC, just four months after Antony lost his bid for governor of Gaul and swiftly seized control. And as soon as the second triumvirate rolled back into town, they began to enact bloody prescriptions. If you listen to Julius Caesar and the pirate's ransom, you may remember that Rome had suffered prescriptions before, only about 40 years ago. These were Sulla's prescriptions. Sulla was basically just a bag of worms in the shape of a human walking around. We've established that. That's our working theory. He was eaten to death by worms, and it's really gruesome, and you can find out more about it in that episode. Picture the Oogie Boogie Man from The Nightmare Before Christmas. He's that guy. Anyway, so Sulla ran these prescriptions, which were the large-scale murder of his political enemies. Caesar was a teenager then. He lived through that hell, and when he became dictator, he took the opposite tactic. He deliberately refrained from slaughtering his enemies and even promoted some. The second triumvirate showed no such restraint. Yeah, sure, because they had watched how well that it turned out for Caesar. Right. They saw Caesar get the stabby stab. They just got the opposite lesson, like, literally doesn't work for anyone. <laughs> like in Sulla's time, the triumvirate in 43 BC had a list. But this time around, things were more chaotic because, you know, Mark Antony's involved, so of course they are. In Sulla's time, if you were one of Sulla's friends or family, you could be pretty sure you were safe. But this time around, it wasn't just one person running the prescriptions. It was three. And each had different priorities about who was to be killed or spared. It was almost impossible to predict whether you personally would be a target or not. 
According to Dio, there was some intense horse trading between the triumvirate, with each one offering up their friends and families for prescription in trade for getting their enemies on the list. Plus, all three needed money badly, and some rich senators wound up on the list even though they had nothing to do with the assassination and weren't a member of the Liberators' party. But unlike Sulla's prescriptions, which mainly targeted the rich, these affected people at all levels of society, because people at all levels of society were involved in Caesar's murder. The rules were as follows. If you were on the triumvirate's list, you could be stripped of citizenship and all your property and declared an outlaw. There'd be a price of 2,500 drachmae on your head, which was a lot of money. And if anyone tried to help you, they'd be added to the list as well. And if your murderers brought the triumvirs your head, they'd hang it in the rostra, like, you know, a kid's painting in kindergarten going up on the fridge. They would be proud of your work. The fallout was brutal. Dio says, quote, The whole city was filled with corpses. Many were killed in their houses, many even in the streets, and here and there in the fora and around the temples. The heads of the victims were once more set up on the rostra, and their bodies either allowed to lie where they were, to be devoured by dogs and birds, or else cast into the river. Fulvia was very involved in these prescriptions. According to Dio, both Fulvia and Mark Antony took great pleasure in displaying the heads of those they had prescribed. He said Mark Antony, quote, always viewed their heads, even if he happened to be eating. Gross. Ugh. Oh, Mark Antony, do better. And sated himself to the fullest extent on this most unholy and pitiable sight. And Fulvia also caused the death of many, both to satisfy her enmity and to gain their wealth. In some cases, men with whom her husband was not even acquainted. Appian tells a colorful story of how Fulvia had a guy prescribed who'd refused to sell his house to her. His head was delivered to Mark Antony. Mark Antony didn't even know the guy. And he totally was like, this must be one of my wives. And he had the head sent to Fulvia, who stuck it up on a stake in front of that house. The guy wouldn't sell her. So Fulvia had the last bloody laugh. Note self, Fulvia wants to buy your shit. Just take her money. Just take it. Just take her money. I mean, she's a badass. She was ruthless. We're not saying she's a hero here by any stretch of the word. But also, you know, grain of salt because it's ancient world and they love to demonize strong women. Absolutely. And also, everyone is pretty terrible. There's no good guys back in the ancient world. Approximately 2,000 people of the equestrian class alone were killed in these prescriptions, and two-thirds of the Roman Senate, which was probably about 600 more people. One of those who lost his life was Cicero. The three triumvirs could not agree on whether or not to put Cicero on the list. Antony pushed for it because he was still upset over the Philippics, and no doubt Fulvia did too. Lepidus agreed, but nobody cared what Lepidus thought, even though he had the biggest army. <laughs> the biggest army and the smallest voice. Right. But Octavian wanted to save Cicero. In order to get Cicero on the list, Lepidus had to offer up his own brother and Antony, his uncle. Meanwhile, Cicero and his brother Quintus were taking refuge at Cicero's country house in Tusculum. When they heard about the prescriptions, Cicero decided to go to Macedonia, where Brutus had his army. Brutus was the guy, one of the guys who was involved, like chief leaders of the conspiracy to murder Caesar. Yes, that Brutus. The et tu brute Brutus. Cicero and his brother fled to the coast, but separated. Quintus was upset that he had nothing with him and was fleeing in destitution. The two brothers embraced tearfully, and Quintus ran back to get his stuff, swearing he'd catch up. He didn't catch up. Quintus was caught and killed not long after he separated from Cicero. They never saw each other again. <laughs> Cicero, not knowing about this, managed to get on a ship. 
but he was racked by indecision. Not long after getting on the ship, he disembarked, deciding to walk to Rome and fling himself on Octavian's mercy. Then he abruptly changed his mind and traveled back to the coast. He was flailing at this moment, flailing all over like an octopus after a bacchanal. Cicero spent a tortured night on the island of Ostra, where he had a villa, because of course he had a villa there, and he was making elaborate plans, one of which was to sneak into Octavian's house and commit suicide on his hearth, cursing Octavian with avenging ghosts. I see nothing wrong with that plan. If I'm going to be a ghost, I don't want to haunt Octavian, man. That guy stayed around for like another 60 years. I know. Haunting Octavian is a commitment. Ooh, that's a marathon, not a sprint, Cicero. You have to like really enjoy to some level being around Octavian. And I don't think a lot of people did. Totally. But finally, toward morning, Cicero came to his senses and decided to travel by boat to Caecia, a coastal town where he had yet another villa. He had a zillion villas. One of the first things Cicero did when he got to Caecia was build a blanket fort. And I do approve of that. He lay down on a couch and pulled a blanket over his head. But a flock of crows flew in the window and tried to tear the blanket off him. And this was considered such a bad omen that Cicero's servants thought he'd better leave. They dragged him out of his blanket fort, packed him into a litter, and carried him toward the sea. And I grew up in an Italian-American household. And birds flying into the household is a total sign, even to this day, a superstition of, like, bad luck, usually a portent of death. Well, what's interesting about that is that the night before Caesar died, there was supposedly a portent where a bird flew into Pompey's portico and other birds tore it to shreds. Mm-hmm. Just as Cicero left, two assassins came to his villa, one of whom was a man Cicero had once defended in court against a charge of patricide, which carried this bizarro death sentence of being sewn up in a leather sack with a dog and a snake and a monkey and a rooster, and then being tossed into the water, which is unfair to the dog and the snake and the monkey and the rooster because they didn't kill their dads. No, they didn't. And also monkeys and snakes. That's like, that's my nightmare. Snakes, I, I think, are beautiful, but I would not want to be in a bag with. I wouldn't want to be sewn into a bag with a snake, let's be clear. But like... I like snakes. Unless it was super poisonous and I could die real quickly. <laughs> I mean, remember, they're also throwing you into water. So please kill me. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so this is this weird death sentence that involves a whole lot of collateral victims. And Cicero saved the guy's life and also probably saved the life of the dog and the snake and the monkey and the rooster and spared them all a really weird and painful death sewn up in a sack in the river. So... The assassins caught up with Cicero quickly, and Cicero saw them coming. He ordered his servants to set his litter down. It's said that his last words were, quote, There's nothing proper about what you were doing, soldier, but do try to kill me properly. He's even schooling the soldiers. <laughs> it's such a Cicero thing to say. He then leaned his head out of the litter so his assassins could more easily behead him. The two men cut off Cicero's head and his hands and had them sent to Antony and Fulvia. When Cicero's severed head arrived in the mail, Fulvia took out her frustrations on it. She took the severed head in her hands, cursed it, and spit on it, and then opened its mouth, pulled out its tongue, and stabbed it multiple times with a golden hairpin. And then Antony had the head and hands hung up in the rostra, in the most visible place he could find so that everyone could appreciate the irony. This was the thing about the golden hairpin that was, like, the reason why when I was reading about Fulvia back when we were doing the Agrippina episodes that I was like, we must tell her story. So now the triumvirs were in firm control of Rome, Cicero was dead, and the Senate was nice and docile. But while the prescriptions had been happening, Brutus and Cassius, two of Caesar's assassins, had seized control of many of Rome's territories in the east and built up an army. So in 42 BC, Octavian and Antony sailed out to face them in Macedonia, leaving Lepidus in charge of Rome. At least... 
that was the official line, but Fulvia was the real power in Rome. According to Dio, quote, she had no respect for Lepidus because of his slothfulness. I mean, nobody had any respect for Lepidus, so. Poor Lepidus. Biggest army, smallest voice, total sloth. Total sloth. Not to be down on sloths because we appreciate sloths. Totally, but they just move at a slower pace. That's just their way of life. Maybe Lepidus just took him three days to cross the street, and this is why nobody listened to him. So, quote, she had no respect for Lepidus because of his slothfulness and managed affairs herself so that neither the Senate nor the people transacted any business contrary to her pleasure because Fulvia didn't take that long across the street. She got shit done. You can see the extent of her power in a story Cassius Dio tells. Mark Antony's brother, Lucius, had won a battle with some randos in the Alps, the details on this were fuzzy, and then came back and petitioned the Senate for a triumph. Fulvia opposed this at first because it was a peddly little battle and not a victory on the grand scale demanded by a triumph. And the Senate refused Lucius the honors he felt he deserved. But then Lucius started courting Fulvia more aggressively and the Senate voted unanimously to grant Lucius his triumph, but only after Fulvia gave permission. But when the big day came, Fulvia made Lucius look like a secondary figure in his own triumph. Dio says that, quote, even though Lucius donned the triumphal garb, mounted the chariot, and performed the other rites customary in such cases, it was Fulvia herself who seemed to be giving the spectacle, employing him as her assistant. For to give any one authority to hold a triumph was a greater thing than to celebrate one which had been received at another's hands. Meanwhile, Antony and Octavian were busy wiping the floor with Brutus. Actually, it was Antony wiping the floor. Octavian was out sick for the pivotal battle. Captain Bone Spurs over here. Such an Octavian thing to do. We're just going to call that pulling an Octavian. Brutus committed suicide when it was clear they'd lost. With the last of the assassins out of the picture, the three triumphers, Antony, Octavian, and nobody listens to him, Lepidus, divided up the empire between them. Mark Antony got the eastern provinces, most of which were governed by various client kingdoms on Rome's behalf. He had emerged as the senior member of the triumvirate, and he had big plans, chief among them building up his army even more by picking up where Caesar had left off in Parthia. Nothing good happens when you try to invade Parthia. Come on, Antony, get with the program. Right. Invading Parthia is a giant mistake. Just forget about it. A victory in Parthia would enrich Antony massively and add to his power. His plan was to raid his client kingdoms for funds to replenish his army. So Mark Antony took up residence in Cilicia, where there was definitely a pirate stronghold that had water slides, and demanded that the ruler of the richest, most prominent client kingdom under his jurisdiction come to him so they could have a friendly conversation about how that ruler was going to pick up the tab for Antony's Parthia project. That client kingdom was Ptolemaic Egypt, and its ruler was Cleopatra. Uh-oh. Meanwhile, Octavian traveled back to Rome to see to the distribution of land grants as rewards for military veterans. There were tens of thousands of veterans who needed land, and they needed land now, or there was no guarantee they'd fight for him or any of the triumvirs in the future. Octavian wanted to deliver the land right away, like yesterday, and he wanted to deliver it himself. He wanted them to remember, Octavian gives you things. All the other people, eh, not so much. Because if it looked like Octavian couldn't deliver on the land grants without the help of the other triumvirs, there was little chance the legions would side with him if one of those triumvirs, <coughs> Anthony, challenged him. 
Octavian had a feeling this was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. Problem was, there wasn't a lot of state-controlled land just lying around unoccupied to give to these soldiers. Octavian either had to limit the land grants, leaving some soldiers out, and practically guaranteeing there'd be a block of soldiers right for rebelling against him when one of the other triumvirs, <coughs> Antony, decided to make a play for total control, or confiscate land from the common people to give to the soldiers. But here's the thing. Octavian wasn't the power in Rome at this time. Fulvia was. And these land grants brought him directly into conflict with her. Fulvia didn't like the optics of Octavian being the one to reward the soldiers. If the land flowed from him, that meant the legions would be grateful to him, not Antony. And when Octavian chose to confiscate land from the common people to give to the soldiers, Fulvia had the perfect pretext to pick a fight. The common people were her people. Octavian depopulated 18 towns throughout Italy, and those dispossessed landowners streamed into Rome, where there was a free grain dole and an organized power base of professional street thugs led by Fulvia to give them an outlet for their frustrations. Meanwhile, the Senate, also led by Fulvia, grew increasingly fierce in their opposition toward Octavian over these land grants, or land confiscations, as Fulvia was calling them. And Fulvia was right. They were confiscations. Yeah. But Fulvia didn't want anyone to think she was anti-military. Just to make sure the veterans didn't take things personally, she traveled constantly among military camps and veteran settlements, bringing her two sons with Antony, and was constantly reminding the veterans in person about how great Antony was and how fantastic a leader he was and how much he loved them. He suckled at the breast of Caesar and how <laughs> everyone should be loyal to Antony when he's not barfing on you. Right, you guys love Antony so much. Mostly when he's not here. Mostly when he's not here and not puking on everyone or pissing everyone off. When he's gone, Fulvia is here to remind you, to remind everyone, look at the baby, look at the baby. Antony is a good person. Look at the baby. Also, Antony's good qualities, like about how he plays awesome practical jokes on you where you think he's dead. I mean, he doesn't have the best sense of humor, but he has a sense of humor. Can you say that about Octavian? I don't think so. No, <laughs> you cannot. <laughs> no practical jokes at all. No, when Octavian becomes in power, you literally can't make a joke about him. He'll <laughs> have you killed. There's no practical jokes. There's no fun. There's no chariots pulled by lions. Nothing. I bet he'd cancel Saturnalia if he could. Octavian was the original Grinch, okay? He would totally cancel Saturnalia. So getting back to our story. Moving on. Dyer says Octavian, quote, could not endure the difficult temper of his mother-in-law. Yeah, because remember Fulvia was his mother-in-law. He was married to Fulvia's daughter. So soon, he and Fulvia were engaged in a very public Public and very bitter feud. There's a hint that maybe the tension between Fulvia and Octavian was more than blind hatred. Marshall, the satirist, and again, he's a satirist, and he was working over a hundred years after the fact, recorded a poem Octavian was said to have written in which Octavian claimed that Fulvia had said to him, look, we can either fight it out or we can fuck it out. Finding that poem was what made me want to cover Fulvia. That and the sling bullets, which we're getting to. So I'm going to give you a little spoiler here. Octavian chose to fight it out. I look, Octavian, just fuck it out. It'll be way more fun. No one has to die. But let's be honest, she would destroy him. She would. Anyway, Octavian was in a bit of a bind here. Fulvia was very publicly claiming that she was working on behalf of Mark Antony, her husband, to go against her meant picking a fight with Antony, and Octavian wasn't ready to challenge Antony directly, but he could spin the conflict as Fulvia's fault alone, politically isolating her from her husband. Fulvia was a more vulnerable target than Antony because powerful women always made Roman men twitchy, even when they were beloved populists. So... 
Octavian set about claiming loudly and at length that what Fulvia was doing was in direct conflict with Antony's wishes. She was acting alone. There were other powerful men in Rome who worked with Fulvia, like Lucius, Antony's brother, and Lepidus, for example, but Octavian didn't mess with them, no, because dudes. He made Fulvia his target. And then he made it personal. Octavian, like we said, was married to Fulvia's daughter, Clodia Pultra, at the moment, but he divorced her and sent her back to Fulvia, saying scornfully that she was still a virgin. After that, it was war. Like so many powerful women in Rome, Fulvia was usually forced to work through powerful men to influence events. Where Sevilla, as we said earlier, was a velvet glove kind of politician whose influence you could barely see, but was very much there. Fulvia was a goddamn sledgehammer. You could see her working through Clodius, and then Curio, and then Anthony, and finally through Lucius, Antony's brother, who was officially consul when she was in charge of Rome. But now, Fulvia did something rare for a Roman woman, seized initiative herself, raising an army to take back Rome from Octavian and install Antony in Abstantia as sole ruler. Antony's brother Lucius joined her, but he was very much the junior partner. Fulvia was having coins inscribed at this time with her face on them in the form of winged victory. She was the first living woman to ever have her face inscribed on Roman coins. I feel like in every episode, somebody inscribes their face on a coin for the first time. Totally, because when we were talking about the um, family of Germanicus and we were talking about Caligula's sisters, they were supposedly the first time. That was supposed to be the first time women ever had their face on a coin. Yeah, and remember Agrippina was like the first empress to have her face on a coin next to whatever. Next to Nero. Remember they had like this really super awkward coin with them facing each other, like way up in each other's personal <laughs> space. Remember that? Where you kind of just wanted to shout, just make out already. And then you realize you can't shout that because they're mother and son and it's awful. Right. But there was a lot of incest rumors. So maybe. Anyway. Back to the story. Fulvia raised an army and marched it toward Rome, announcing her plan to liberate the city. But Octavian beat her back and forced her to retreat. So Fulvia and Lucius seized the town of Perugia in Etruria along the northwestern coast of Italy. Diosis Fulvia took a hands-on role in military defense, describing her as swaggering around, wearing a sword, giving orders left and right, and haranguing the soldiers. Kind of like a general? I know, it sounds like something a general would do, or perhaps a dux femina, maybe. Hmm. Meanwhile, Octavian dug a ditch around the town, he built a wall, and blocked access to the river, intending to starve the rebels out. So, what was Antony doing while this was going on? (laughs) (laughs) What or who? (laughs) Right. It's an interesting question to ask. While his wife was at war defending his interests, Mark Antony was conspiring. Conspicuously silent. Crickets. Crickets. It's unlikely he didn't know what was happening. Some sources suggest he was embarrassed by Fulvia's actions. I mean, I don't think anything could embarrass Mark Antony. Others suggested that his own legions refused to fight Caesar's adoptive son, which I actually find a little bit more believable. Fulvia wrote to Antony probably a lot, but there's no record he ever wrote back. So let's look at where Antony was at the moment, shall we, Jen? Sure. Last we heard from him, he traveled to Cilicia with the water slides and summoned Cleopatra to him. He basically wanted to take advantage of her wealth and support as a client ruler to build up his own power base and earn glory for himself by fighting Caesar's war in Parthia and building up his strength so the other triumvirs, <coughs> Octavian, could not challenge him. Cleopatra, meanwhile, had aligned herself with Caesar when he was alive and seen massive success from that. She'd shamelessly seduced him, according to most accounts, and Caesar had been so infatuated that he'd fought her battles stabilized her country, set her up as sole ruler of Egypt, and eliminated her enemies. Swoon. Swoon. I'm swooning. It's 
possible Cleopatra had real feelings for Caesar, but she also needed a powerful protector in Rome to keep hold of the many opposing violent factions in her own country. Now that Caesar was dead, Cleopatra had, shall we say, an opening. And Mark Antony, from the moment he met her, was putty in her hands. So according to Plutarch, when he was on the flying ointment, quote, Cleopatra made such booty of Antony that while Fulvia, his wife, was carrying on a war at Rome in defense of her husband's interests, he suffered Cleopatra to hurry him off to Alexandria. There, indulging in the sports and diversions of a young man of leisure, he squandered his time and spent it upon pleasures. For they... (laughs) This is the best part. (laughs) For they had an association called the Imitable Livers. The Inimitable livers. The imitable livers. Inimitable livers. Imitable. Imitable livers. Inimitable. But they had an association called the imitable livers. Something about the liver. Whatever. And every day they feasted one another, making expenditures of incredible profusion. It's a club where you wreck your liver. (laughs) It's a club where you wreck your liver. And when we get to Antony and Cleopatra, that will become significant when Mark Antony decides he's the new Dionysus, god of wine. Anyway, Cleopatra ever contributed some fresh delight and charm to Antony's hours of seriousness or mirth, keeping him in constant tutelage and released him neither night nor day. Oh boy, Plutarch. I mean, Plutarch is really enjoying himself with this fevered imagining right now. (laughs) So we're not sure if Fulvia knew about Cleopatra and Antony. Appian tells us that she did. That in fact, Fulvia started her war with Octavian, so Antony would have to leave Cleopatra's side and come back to her. If that was Fulvia's plan, it really didn't work. But we do know, at this point in history, Mark Antony was feasting it up with Cleopatra and styling himself as the new Dionysus. So meanwhile, here's what Fulvia's side was up to, quote from Appian, quote, When the work of Octavian was finished, famine fastened upon Lucius. Remember, Lucius was the guy that... Fulvia was working with, and the evil grew more pressing since neither he nor the city had made preparations beforehand. Lucius, oppressed by hunger, fought a night battle, extending from the first watch till daylight, but he failed and was driven back into Perugia. There, he took an account of the remaining provisions and forbade the giving of any to the slaves, because let's just be assholes to the slaves, because they haven't had a shitty enough life, and prohibited them from escaping lest the enemy should gain better knowledge of his desperate situation. The slaves wandered about in crowds, threw themselves on the ground in the city, and between between the city and their forts and ate grass or green leaves wherever they could find them. Those who died, Lucius buried in long trenches, lest if he burned them, the enemy should discover what was taking place, and if they were unburied, disease should result from the poisonous exhalations. The siege was brutal. There are archaeological remnants of this siege at Perugia, and one of the things archaeologists have found were sling bullets from both sides, and these sling bullets have some extremely rude shit carved into them, and I just The sling bullets were like the thing that got me into this story, Jen. So we actually brought in some outside help to dramatize these sling bullets for you. We found sling bullets with really explicit trash talk carved into them from both sides. And we brought in some friends of ours to read these for us and kind of dramatize the situation. And just as a warning, this is all very offensive because it's the ancient world and ancient people were offensive. And also it's very explicit. So if you were listening with small children, why? (laughs) Why? Number one, why would you do that to your children? Number two, you might want to turn it down or otherwise they're about to get an education. Sit on this, gape-ass Octavian. Oh, there's a dick carved on the other side. How cute. 
I'm aiming for Fovia's quit. Hi, Octavian. You suck a cock. Bald Lucius and Fovia, open your asses. Take this, Octavian, you bitch. Wow. <laughs> there's one thing when you read it, and there's quite another thing when it's read to you so incredibly well. Our amazing readers were Katie and Nathan from the Queen's Podcast. They run a podcast about badass women in history, and they pair cocktails with each subject. So obviously, they are right up our alley. They were just perfect for this dialogue, so we had to bring them in. Absolutely. And we're so thankful that they've agreed to read those lines, which are not the easiest to get through. We really feel that it was important to dramatize these because we we just really wanted to give you a feel of what it was like in the trenches. And the morale on both sides. Like, there was so much animosity on Octavian's side and on Fulvia's side that as they were gearing up for these battles, people were casting sling bullets, which are made in lead, and then taking the time to carve them with this profanity. These people are not woke. I mean... <laughs> And Katie and Nathan were able to really give you a sense of how over the top and ridiculous it was. Yeah, because it was really over the top. I just want to add, though, that at least at least one of them knows where the clit is. Totally not Octavian, though. I would guess <laughs> it's definitely not Octavian. Wait, who said that? Octavian's side said that. He outsourced that. 100% Octavian <laughs> did not know about the clit. So, sassy sling bullets aside, Fulvia's army made a brave attempt, but they lost this battle. Octavian spared Lucius, of course he did, because dudes, and made him commander of Spain. But Fulvia was forced to flee to Athens with her children because toxic masculinity once again. And also because, let's be honest, Fulvia really had Octavian on the ropes, and she was the real threat here. Yeah, I mean, Lucius was kind of like a Lepidus character. He probably also took three days to cross the street and wasn't that effective as, as a human being. I'm probably being super hard on Lucius, but also, like, Lucius wasn't the threat. You're right. This is when Mark Antony finally pried himself away from Cleopatra. Antony met Fulvia in Athens, and he was pissed. But not at Octavian, at Fulvia. It's not recorded what Antony said to Fulvia, but we can imagine that they had an epic fight. The reason Antony was mad was that he wasn't ready to take on Octavian directly yet. He was still building up his power base in Alexandria. I guess that's what you're calling it, okay? But Fulvia had forced his hand. So after yelling at his wife, who was just fighting for him, and I mean, maybe if he wasn't so preoccupied with having an affair, he would have written to her and gave his opinion on how things were playing out. But no, he just didn't. So my feeling on this is that really this is all Antony's fault anyway. Antony sailed back to Italy to have it out with Octavian, who was holed up in Brindisia. Antony brought with him about 200 ships and lots of troops. Octavian shut the gates against Antony, and Antony prepared to break down the walls. Things were about to come to full-on war, which neither party wanted, but neither could afford to back down and lose face in front of his men. Honor was at stake! Honor was at stake! Ah! <laughs> But, <laughs> but then both sides got news that Fulvia had died in Greece. It happened soon after Antony left. Some say Fulvia died of a mysterious illness. Appian says, quote, She fell sick because she could not bear the anger of Antony and wasted away with grief because he would not see her even when she was ill. Both Octavian and Antony seized on the pretext. They agreed that this war was all Fulvia's fault. She'd started it of her own volition without Antony's agreement because he was off banging Cleopatra. Antony didn't have any knowledge of this or consent. He was building up his power base, Jen. He was building up something. He was all about the base. He was building up getting to fourth base. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but now 
that Fulvia was dead, both Antony and Octavian, they were just going to shrug it off and go, you know, women, am I right? And they were going to let this lie. Nobody had to go to war. The second triumvirate was still intact for now. Appian said, rather dismissively, that, quote, the death of this turbulent woman who had stirred up so disastrous a war on account of her jealousy of Cleopatra seemed extremely fortunate to both of the parties who were rid of her. Nevertheless, Antony was much saddened by this event because he considered himself, in some sense, the cause of it. I mean, freaking stating the obvious, Appian. Too little too late, dude. Octavian and Antony decided to make up, and to seal the deal, Antony married again, this time to Octavia, Octavian's sister, who was 29. Isn't that refreshing? Totally refreshing. It's not 13, not a totally inappropriate age. No, she's uh, she's Octavian's big sister. Right. So, unlike both Fulvia and Cleopatra, Octavia was considered a model of Roman womanhood. Plutarch emerges from his fever dream to call her, quote, a wonder of a woman, and adds that everyone hoped, quote, that Octavia, who, besides her great beauty, had intelligence and dignity, when united to Antony and beloved by him, as such a woman naturally must be, naturally, because women who command their own armies and take the initiative are unlovable, but this woman naturally must be lovable, would restore harmony and be their complete salvation. So we're just going to put all this emotional labor on Octavia's shoulders. There's no doubt Antony had a real relationship with Octavia. They had two daughters together, both named Antonia, because they literally could not think of a different name than Antonia. Because everyone had to know that they came from Antony. Antony was like, let me put my mark on them. It's like, I just need everybody to know whose loins they sprang from. Octavia sometimes even traveled with Antony. It's likely that they gave it a real go. However, Antony just couldn't quit Cleopatra, and in four years, he'd abandoned Octavia for the Egyptian queen, and that relationship ended in a rather spectacular giant tire fire of a shit show, which we'll get to. But back to Fulvia, reviled by Cicero, beloved on the streets of Rome, a charismatic rabble-rouser and gang leader, she was no Roman's ideal of womanhood. But that's what made her great, right Jen? That's what I think. Absolutely. She was a woman with real power who wasn't afraid to break through the back channel and rule in her own right, both in the Senate and the streets. So that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks. And in the meantime, connect with us on social. We're on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl. And we touched on this at the beginning, but if you'd like to support the podcast and get more of us, the best way to do that is to join our Patreon. Starting at just $2 a month, you can get extra episodes. We've already done several mini-sodes at this point, Jen. What have we got up now? Pompey and the Pirates. Pompey and the Pirates. And we also invited Julius Caesar onto the podcast to critique the Battle of Winterfell from Game of Thrones because that is the kind of shit we're occasionally going to do in the minisodes. It gets crazy. We're a little bit looser and sometimes we just do straight up history stuff and sometimes we just shamelessly indulge ourselves. So we've got more ideas lined up and for $10 a month, you can even suggest some topics. So we've got some new patrons to shout out, don't we, Jenny? We do. And we're doing a new thing with the patrons where we are only shouting out people at the $5 and $10 and up levels just because we had to switch that award around so that we could make sure that everybody, even those at the $2 level, got the mini-sodes. We had to kind of change that. So if you don't hear your name in the episode and you do donated at the $2 level. It's because we had to switch those rewards around, but we still appreciate you very much. So um, we have some some $5 and $10 patrons to shout out and thank. So thank you to Bill. Thank you to Anne McMenemy. That's my mom. Thank you, Jen's mom. Carolyn Kruger. Courtney. 
and Zoe Ruskin. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for helping us make this podcast a reality. We love doing it and your support means that we're able to continue. Yeah, your support means the world and the effects of your support have been directly felt already in the fact that we're producing mini-sodes, which we're super excited about. And if you want to support the podcast, but you're not really ready for a monthly commitment, we understand. We also have a Ko-Fi account. The link is on the homepage of our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And you can kick us a few bucks if you feel so inspired or leave us a nice review. It's always great to see a nice review. It helps us move up in the algorithms. It generally makes us feel happy and, you know, it balances out some of the negativity in the world. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you so much. Thank you.